This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and joining me today are two very special guests. First of all, we have friend of the network and regular Primitive Culture contributor. She's the Garrick of this show, I think, (laughs) Clara Cook. Hi, Clara. Hi, Duncan. (laughs) <laughs> and today we're also joined by Guinevere Nell uh, from the Briar Patch. Hi, Gwen. Hi, Duncan. And we're meeting in uh, a very exciting location. We're meeting at the prestigious London School of Economics in central London. Um, <laughs> one for the economists there. And we're here really to mark uh, a, a special occasion this weekend, which is Human Rights Day. Um, and this was Clara's idea, actually, was that, that we should do something on human rights in Star Trek and human rights legislation. And it, the, the timing sort of worked out that we could do it perfectly, you know, in time for this annual celebration of our human rights. Um, and basically, I thought, since, since it was Clara who suggested this, uh, I'm going to hand over to Clara to, to take the reins uh, for this show, because... Frankly, I, you know, what I know about human rights it could be written probably on the back of an envelope. But um, I think it should be an interesting discussion anyway. So, Clara, over to you. Oh, thank you, Duncan. So, actually, you made a good point, which is um, what we actually know about human rights um, can be quite vague sometimes. Um, partly because if we have the human rights that we have available to us in um, a lot of, a lot of cu- um, cultures and countries around the world, um, specifically where we are right now, which is in the UK, which is still in the European um, Union. Just we have, about. Just, just about. <laughs> we have the European Convention of Human Rights, and then also there's the uh, British Human Rights Act, and then, um, as um, Duncan will probably point out at some point, there's also um, the human, human Rights Charter within the UN. Um, because we're used to experiencing some of these human rights, we don't necessarily be taken for granted, we don't think about them every day, um, and we may not necessarily know all the detail of the legislation. Um, but one thing that we would notice is if we're watching a television show, and I'm talking about Star Trek, we would notice very much when those human rights aren't being shown on screen. Right, or if there are maybe even human rights that we don't have protected now, but you do have protected in the Federation. And I would also mention, I guess, the US Constitution, which mm-hmm. protects certain rights. It's pretty short, actually. Um, and there are, you know, only, I mean, you have the Bill of Rights in particular um, that are actually the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, um, but that pr- protect some of the basic rights, um, sometimes rights that, you know, a lot of the rest of the world wouldn't even consider a right, like carrying a gun <laughs> <laughs> or forming a militia. 
Um, but it's it's another thing to look at, especially because, of course, Star Trek is, you know, from Hollywood, is American. It's true. And I mean, I suppose, you know, certainly for, for me and, and probably for you, Clara, you know, coming from a kind of English perspective or a European perspective, I guess that's our idea about these rights is quite different. I mean, a lot of people in England are very anti-human rights. I mean, Theresa May, the Prime Minister, uh, what would this be like a few months ago, maybe, maybe a bit longer, was very much talking about the, the leaving Europe as an opportunity to tear up all these European rights because they see them as kind of getting in the way, as, you know, making life difficult for people. So there is that kind of... Whereas in America, you were talking about gun rights, you know, there's this kind of, on the other side of the coin, you know, we have this right, you can't take it away from us, this is this real important entrenched thing, however much to the rest of the world it might seem slightly mad, uh, but, you, you know, that's a right and it cannot be sort of compromised. So these very different attitudes to what these kind of rights mean and, and whether protecting them is the right thing or not. Yeah, I think um, Americans have a certain love for the idea of the Constitution and the idea of America as being created in order to protect the rights of the people as sort of battling against the evil Britons and mm. <laughs> breaking away from that and enshrining certain basic human rights, which obviously only applied to a very few people at the beginning and so on. But I think also the right to freedom of, freedom of speech, the First Amendment, is also really uh, something that Americans really care about a lot. And they mm. do have this particular view of rights, you know, and, and why they they care about them and don't want them infringed at, at all. And, and sort of they're sort of enshrined so that if you infringe it a little bit, it's as bad as infringing it completely. Mm. Whereas I think in Britain, there's a little bit more of an idea of compromise and freedom of speech is great, but only under some circumstances, not all circumstances. Um, but I think maybe your representation of Theresa May, I would possibly take a little question with. I mean, I think even in America, you have this idea of wanting to protect the rights, but wanting to protect them our way, you know, the mm -hmm. American way. And so the European Court of Human Justice, of Justice, did I say it right? The, the European Court. Yeah. For, <laughs> um, anyways, is, is you know, um, American presidents, especially Trump, I think, um, you know, love to snub their nose at it and say, mm -hmm. you're not allowed to tell us how to protect rights. Mm -hmm. And maybe with the whole Brexit thing, um, there's kind of a new movement here that, you know, we don't want Europe to be telling us how to do human rights. It doesn't necessarily mean we don't care about human rights anymore mm -hmm. um, or animal rights. And mm -hmm. as I understand it, a lot of people in, in um, a lot of MPs are actually, you know, really want to protect animal rights at least as much, uh, but they just want to do it in British law. But there was a controversy recently, which uh, it was one of these things that sort of blew up and then they seem to have backtracked a bit, but the 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 story anyway was that because we're going through this process at the moment of withdrawing from European legislation and incorporating some of those laws into our own legislation and sort of modifying them at the same time, there was this debate, which is very relevant for Star Trek actually, uh, about animal rights and the idea of whether animals were sentient or not. And the the idea was that, you know, when the animal uh, welfare legislation was being incorporated into the British legislation, the idea of animal sentience would be taken out of the equation. Um, and, you know, understandably, a lot of people were very angry about that and reacted against that. And they seem to have kind of backtracked on that and said, oh, no, we will, you know, we will still recognise animals are sentient, which is the European position. Yeah, well, my understanding of it, just from listening for, for one afternoon to radio and television and discussions on this, I think, again, the idea was that it 
that we wanted to do it in British law. And this idea of sentience, I think, was overblown a little bit by the media from what I heard, uh, that the people who w wanted to drop the European version of the bill um, were actually advocates of the idea of... And, and they said that... Um, I forget the, the name of the person who I'm, who I'm thinking of who was saying this... Um, but uh, but he's he's one of the leading Tories on this on this um, issue, you know, um, debating this bill, and he said that um, it's you know the vast majority of of British people believe that animals have the same amount of sentience that is protected in the European bill, but it was this kind of it was a more of a, a quibble over certain distinctions in the two bills, mm -hmm. but that the British version, if they could do that, rather than accepting the European version, would be at least as, as strong in terms of actual welfare rights mm. uh, for animals. I mean, the idea of sentience isn't... I mean, I don't think that this uh, legislation is talking about cats and dogs, pets. It's talking about um, primarily referring or questioning the sentience of animals that we, that we use in industrial farming um, and in food production. Uh, and if you don't have to consider the sentience of, or the well-being of an animal um, that you're going to eat or you're going to raise to eat or you're going to raise to, I don't know, use in some other industrial way, um, then you can um, probably have different types of practices which are more money, <clears throat> more money efficient. So what I would ask is in a world um, of the future of like Star Trek or, or the Federation um, where you have replicators... And you don't need to farm great swings mm. of cattle to make hamburgers or steaks or whatever. Um, and where there's enough food for everybody, um, the efficiency and the money-saving um, quality of, uh, or, or poss possible possibility of mass production of food and farming isn't such an issue. So in that case, all the animals, domestic or otherwise, in the Star Trek future should be like having great lives. Because... <laughs> They wouldn't be industrially farmed. We mm. wouldn't necessarily need to worry about their sentience. We would say, yeah, well, they can be sentient or not or whatever. I mean, they can enjoy uh, good lives. Um, so my question is, we're talking about, like, biological creatures now, but it could be possible that we could very soon in the future be talking about um, artificial intelligence or engineered creatures or, or electronic creatures. Um, and that would take us into something in, like, Star Trek, like, in episodes like the measure of, of a man mm -hmm. um, or um, I think it's called the offspring where mm -hmm. data mm -hmm. creates his own child. Yeah. So I want to know what you guys thought about those kinds of episodes. Well, well, it's interesting. I mean, I've always sort of wondered, you know, we have certain characters in Star Trek who've, you know, uh, the Vulcans, for example, being vegetarian, Chakotay supposedly a vegetarian, though not occasionally when they forget about that in the script writing. But I mean, if everything they're eating is replicated, I mean, there's this issue now with if you can uh, create you know, there are ways of creating fake meat from the DNA of actual animals. And then there's a sort of question, you know, what's the kind of, you know, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan or whatever, what's the kind of moral status of that product? Um, and is it okay to eat it? It's, it's closer to the idea of replicated meat. So I suppose there is that sort of issue. And certainly they probably don't have factory farming and these kind of worst abuses of animal welfare that we have uh, in the real world. We, we do see people eating real animals. I and mean, we see like the Klingons hunting animals and eating them. We see, I think there's an Enterprise episode where they find the, the targs on board the ship that they're going to eat. I mean, certainly I think a lot of the arguments, looking into some of the arguments um, that were used to defend slavery, there are parallels between those and the kind of arguments that are used to defend the exploitation of animals, you know, to do with these questions of 
you know, how much these, these beings are suffering, how much they're like, are they like us, are they different from us, and so on. So there is this kind of parallel in the real world between these two different uh, sort of campaigns, different issues, and certainly in the way that Star Trek presents it, some of those issues come through as well. <laughs> yeah, so that's definitely something that um, is um, Next Generation is quite concerned about. Um, also Voyager as well, because they have a member of the crew who isn't... Um, I would say, like a living being, um, biological living being. He's a hologram. Um, but especially in uh, Next Generation, because we have Data, who mm. is um, a really interestingly written character. He's full of depth, full of um, a lot of lot of different characteristics. He's obviously sentient. I guess the only thing that um, it concerns um, Starfleet, especially in The Measure of a Man, is that um, he's not biological. He's an entity that's been created... Um, he's technically he's a machine he can be turned off as Riker illustrated in that episode um, and he also doesn't feel emotions but it's clear that he he is more than just a simple machine because he does keep um, Tasha Yar's picture because they were they were close um, he keeps um, mementos that the, the, the colleagues give him um, and friends give him and what struck me as really interesting about the episode is that the crew, uh, Picard and Rekha especially, aren't so much concerned... Well, they're not, they're not so much concerned about Data because that he is their friend and their comrade. It's partly that. But it's also because, as Starfleet officers, they care about human rights. Mm. So they care about his intrinsic worth being, like, protected, if that makes sense. And that's something I wondered if, like, perhaps maybe Starfleet officers and people living in the Federation... Were gr grew up with or mm. were trained to think about, which is the human rights. Mm. Yeah, both, I think. Um, I think it, that um, as a Starfleet officer, you're certainly, you know, you have a, a fundamental um, obligation to the truth is one of the things they say. Mm. Um, and obviously they there's the prime directive, but I think in there, and I don't know what article it would be, um, but there's definitely something that, that talks about um, humanoid rights or the rights of all sentient beings um, and so forth. And, and that's why, you know, when they meet a new alien species, they don't fire first or anything. They mm -hmm. obviously try to communicate, try to create diplomatic relations, try to respect their rights. And, you know, uh, for example, if someone's in distress, they answer a distress call. They don't ask whether the alien is you know, humanoid even, or, or anything like that, they, they respect the life of, of that alien. I find it interesting that um, Data, from the beginning in TNG, Data is respected. Obviously, he's been with Starfleet for a long time, but you get the sense, except for, obviously, in Measure of Man, you have uh, a scientist or a, uh, whatever he's called, um, mm. I forget. That Maddox. He, yeah, yeah, Maddox, but that... What his his actual you know he he works on artificial life so mm. whatever that's called, um, so he doesn't respect Data's rights as much and that seems to come from a sort of a self interest in his own career, making his own name that kind of thing. Obviously, he's not looking for profit, but he's looking for this sort of equivalent in the Federation, which is recognition, mm. and that seems to for him uh, blind him a bit to Data as um, being a sentient, intelligent life form. But, um, so everyone else pretty much respects Data as that, but in Voyager, even though in TNG you have a hologram who becomes sentient, mm. right, um, even so, in by the time you're with Voyager, which is years later, uh, decades later, whatever, 
um, from the beginning, you see that there's not nearly as much respect for the EMH. And even though he clearly begins to have um, more of a sentience since he's living, you know, since he's um, awake all the time, since he's, he's running 24-7 or, or, well, every day anyway, the first person who actually begins to respect him as a human being is not from the Federation at all. It's mm. Cass, mm. right? So I find it interesting. Janeway, over the seasons, it takes her. It takes her a long time. She has to be, you know, yelled at by Cass. We're not yelled at, but talked to by Cass, and she has to even um, she, before she respects the EMH at all. The doctor, but also even then, when he does something a bit wrong and he goes off, um, he he violates orders and he goes with the other holograms. That, in you know, what he does that is you know, wrong is, in my opinion, not nearly as morally wrong as what Janeway does in that episode, where she wants to switch off the holograms from the beginning. And even at the end, she only allows the ones that she's come to trust to, to be able to, to stay switched on, even though they're running from a race that has no respect for humanoid rights, mm. who consider everybody prey, and who are just much more vicious than, than even the, you know, religious crazy hologram and what's the episode called for listeners i forget flesh and blood flesh and blood yeah think, flesh yeah. and blood yeah um what do you think i mean I, it seems to me that janeway is biased against holograms and and for, towards you know biological creatures definitely i think i mean compared to picard it's interesting picard uh, and data you know as you say from quite early on picard has this sort of relationship with data he's quite protective of data and so on um, Janeway is, if anything, on Voyager, probably the person who has the least time for the holographic doctor. You know, even in, say, in latent image, see, I mean, you talked about Kess having a word with her. We have Seven doing the same thing, mm. having a word with her. And it's interesting, some of the same arguments uh, that crop up in Author Author in the seventh mm. season uh, are reflective of some of the things that have happened in latent image. So this idea of, is the doctor more like a replicator? That's exactly mm. what Janeway has said to Seven of Nine, mm -hmm. you know, only a couple of years earlier. And then that's what's being said, uh, you, you know, which she's sort of defending him against. And so by that point, but it's quite a late episode, you know, it's a seventh season episode. We finally get Janeway really kind of going to bat for the Doctor and really mm. kind of defending his rights. But most of the time, you know, it's definitely been a long journey for her to get there. And she's been one of the most sceptical people really on that show um, about that. I mean, in terms of the Doctor, it's quite interesting. I read an interview once with... Um, uh, they'd interviewed both Jerry Taylor and Brandon Braga, and this was while Voyager was running. Um, and they asked them both the same question, is the Doctor alive? And Jerry Taylor said, yeah, of course he is. And Brandon Braga said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so even in the writer's room, there was this kind of, mm -hmm. you know, discussion about this kind of thing that, that gets talked about uh, in The Measure of a Man as well. It, is it just that with these holograms that we mistakenly sort of put this humanity onto them, that we anthropomorphize them, they talk about that. And in The Measure of a Man, I'm not sure if this is in the original cut or in the extended edition, but there's a, a discussion between Riker and Troy where Riker says to her, do you feel anything from Data? And she says no. And obviously there's this idea that Data doesn't have emotions. And she basically says, you know, it is possible that we're putting all this onto him and that, that he does, that, you know, there isn't anything there in a sense. And at the end of that episode, the judge says, you know, I, I can't rule whether Data has a soul or not. But then she says, but I don't know whether I have a soul or not. And, mm. you know, and Picard earlier has said to Maddox, go on then, prove to me that I'm sentient because you can't do it, you know. Right. So it's this kind of, there's this 
essence of uncertainty, I suppose, about these issues at some level. And really it becomes, I don't know, almost like a kind of um, a leap of faith or a kind of gesture of faith to say, well, you know, we're go- at the very least, we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt, you know. And in that exocomp episode as well, there's this kind of idea, well, there's a long time where they're saying, well, we're not sure, we don't know. But if we don't know, mm-hmm. it's wrong to exploit these beings if they, they may be sentient or they, you know, they, they may have feelings about it. And I suppose it also ties into this idea of emotions, because, I mean, one of the reasons that people have often given for exploiting animals is, oh, they don't feel suffering the way we do. They don't have emotions the way we do. Um, and that's, you know, very debatable. I mean, if you look at the, the way animals react, say, you know, a, a mother cow reacts when the uh, calf is taken away from them, you know, they exhibit what I would say is a very clear emotional response. But we like this idea that animals don't have mm. emotions as we understand them, because it justifies treating them that way. Now, obviously, with data, uh, you know, allegedly, at least, he doesn't have emotions. I mean, until he plugs in that emotion chip, uh, he doesn't give off any, any emotions. And, and therefore, does that mean he doesn't have the same kind of subjective experience, in a mm. sense, um, as we do. You know, what, what's the role? Because I suppose when Maddox defines sentience, he says, is he intelligent? Is he self-aware? Is he conscious? Well, yes, data has all those things. But if he doesn't have an emotional response, then there is... It, it, it's hard for us to understand that, I suppose, because it's so alien to us. See, I always thought that data... I mean, I know when they probably wrote data, they didn't intend this. But I always thought that data um, is a... Brilliant example. I mean, I know Spock has emotions, and obviously Vulcans have very strong emotions, and they control it with um, their philosophy, and I would say probably a certain level of mindfulness. Mm. Um, but to a certain extent, Spock's a bit like this, and also Data as well. I read years ago um, an article written by somebody who was on a the uh, uh, spectrum mm. for autism and Asperger's syndrome, and he was saying that he identified with Data. Um, and he never really believed that Data didn't feel emotions. Mm. Um, he said that Data was too curious not mm. to be emotional. He was um, his 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 love of music and of art, and although there's certain elements of it where he's mm. replic- he's like, like getting stuff too perfect, and he's copying and he's replicating mm. things rather than maybe being a messy emotional being that a human would be. Um, his constant curiosity about the world and his desire to be more human and to learn mm. um, and also to defend and care for the people around him suggests somebody who, or suggests a, a, a sentient being who exhibits at least some sort of low-level kind of emotional connection to the world around them. Mm. And he was saying that's very much how he felt as somebody on the um, like autism spectrum, um, that just because you're not expressing the kinds of emotions that human beings expect to be expressed, and mm. this would go for animals too. Mm. You know, they say some of the most... Um, uh, emotionally, uh, li- animals living the most emotionally rich lives on our planet are like whales and dolphins, mm-hmm. uh, dolphins especially. Um, and um, but they're not. I mean, they're not exhibiting the kind of emotion that we would expect from like another human being. So it'd be very hard to tell the emotion of a dolphin, mm-hmm. but it's not so hard for another dolphin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, that, that was the sort of. The, I always felt like that. Data very much was part of the human world. Mm. He just was like a, like a different kind of human, or, or or not a human, but it doesn't mean he couldn't have an active role and self determining his his own future and his own destiny. Yeah, yeah. Um, you you brought up a few things. I mean, I, one thing is that I think that we have a much easier time if we can, uh, if we can, uh, so if we can. Um, 
connect to something, if it, if it reminds us of ourselves, mm. then we are much more likely to grant you know, humanoid rights to, to that being. And so um, when, some, when data, say, doesn't express uh, emotions, that makes it more difficult for some. He probably, I think I've, I've heard arguments like that, he probably does have some type of emotions even before the emotionship, just not, he doesn't express them in the same way, but that separates him from people. And so when um, Pulowski, the, the second doctor, um, you know, second season TNG, came on, she didn't seem to, to respect data as a, as a humanoid. Um, and uh, the doctor, I think a lot of people would, you know, immediately assume that he wasn't like he, uh, a human or a humanoid um, because, you know, he's holographic and they know holograms as what they're used to on the holodeck, uh, which are, you know, not. I think that if, if the doctor it is sentient, it comes from the kind of emergence from the great complexity of his programming in his mind. And this, and I think um, the way that sentience probably should have been thought of at the time, which would equate data to the doctor, would be that level of complexity, the level of learning, the amount of time that they've been able to learn and sort of create new programs for themselves, new, new additions to their programming so that they're not just a carbon copy of something else. But instead, the way that people interact is usually how much they can relate to them. So if they can relate to data more than the doctor because he looks more like a humanoid, um, in a sense, because the you know you can throw something through the doctor sometimes if he turns off his his physicality or whatever, so they don't relate to that. So they relate more to data perhaps. Although some other people might find the doctor seems you know interacts more like a human because he shows more emotion or whatever. And then, you know, they would choose the doctor over. But it's, it's this idea of relating to, to them mm. instead of having a greater understanding of the complexity that they have and the learning and the other things. I mean, that's only one maybe too simplistic way of thinking about it. But if that's the, where intelligence and perhaps sentience comes from, then we should use that, not relatability. Well, it's interesting. I mean, actually, there's a line in Measure of a Man where Maddox says... Uh, something along the lines of, if this was a box on wheels, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Like you know, the exocomps. Exactly, yeah, exactly. It's, it's because data looks human that we kind of imagine that he is human. I mean, I don't know about you, we, in my house, we have an Amazon Echo in the kitchen. And so you talk to the Echo, you ask it for things, it makes jokes and stuff. I mean, and there's sort of a question about like, how do you address the echo and do you my, my partner for example said she thought it's important to be polite to the echo because not because the echo is is alive but because it's 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 not good to get into the habit of mm -hmm. talking in a rude or sort of sure. fashion to, to anything even whether it's alive or not my son who's two he talks to the echo and i have no idea what he thinks you know he knows that you say things to it and it does what you, you know you say play uh, the wheels on the bus and mm -hmm. it will play it you know i don't know what he thinks that thing is that responds when he talks to it he talks to the dogs as well and they don't talk back to him obviously but I mean it, it's sort of curious you know I wonder whether for him growing up with this kind of machine that he can talk to whether that mm. um, will affect what his feelings are about machines versus humans about different kinds of probably you know, entities like that so yeah. in most cases um, and definitely in the case of the doctor and also in the case of data um, and it's, it's does relate to mm. um, the echoes. In most cases, um, human rights, um, and also with humans, in most cases, human rights are there to protect people because they're being asked to do something mm. or they're being made to do something 
that's going to either harm them, damage their future, um, or something that's going to be uncomfortable, something they don't want to do. Um, and so human rights, like, we don't put human rights in so that we can be kind to everybody. You know, mm. there's just sort of this idea that we should be kind and respectful to everybody anyway. And that includes a computer. You know, mm. I mean, like a computer at the moment, maybe computers aren't sentient or emotional beings. Um, although they do say that some computers have the sort of intelligence level, level like, I guess, technical level of a two-year-old. But I mean, you know, I mean, if you're going to be hitting your computer and kicking, you know, you're like not that too far from kicking a dog. Mm. You know, I mean, you should be treating the things around you with respect anyway, even if they're engineered objects or they're the natural world, like a plant. I mean, I talk to my plants. Do my plants understand what I'm saying? No, but I'm when I talk to them, I feed them and I water them. So. And they're supposed to grow better as well. If you so, talk to and them. The, the attention I'm giving to them and the kindness I'm giving to them will ensure they probably will live longer. Um, so, so should Chief O'Brien be getting in trouble for kicking the computer <laughs> you know, when he's having trouble with it? Uh, we've decided that the London School of Economics building has obviously become sentient and taken against us. So we've been forced out by a second fire alarm and we've relocated to a very nice cafe around the corner. So um, we're going to pick up the conversation here. I was just thinking, I mean... Talking about the measure of a man, um, one of the things that struck me is that in these Star Trek episodes where there's some kind of question over the, the rights or the humanity of one of these characters, there's a difference between those that address it in a kind of legal framework and those that address it in a moral framework. And we have, you know, in the Voyager episode, Latent Image, there's this kind of moral question about the Doctor, but it's not really put into legal terms. It's only once you get to author, author, that there's this kind of legal framework for it. And similarly, um, in a way with the exocomps, it's it's more of a kind of moral thing. There isn't time to, to set up a kind of legal arrangement there. And I guess in other earlier episodes that we see, you know, Devil in the Dark, the treatment of the creature in that, even in Discovery, the treatment of the tardigrade, there are these kind of moral questions about how do we treat other beings, whether we exploit them or not, but they're not necessarily framed in a, a legal setup. And obviously Measure of a Man was written by Melinda Snodgrass, who was a lawyer herself by profession before she was a writer. So she brought that kind of legal approach to trying to define these things um, and I was quite interested when I was looking into this I don't know how familiar either of you are with this the Dred Scott case I hadn't heard of this but obviously in America I yeah. get the impression this was quite a big deal yes. which has a lot of parallels with the measure of a man mm -hmm. because it's this uh, this slave who basically he'd, he'd lived for a period of time in one of the northern states and therefore you know in a state where he was kind of recognised as free I think and then gone back to a southern state and he was petitioning to have his freedom recognised and the case went all the way to the Supreme Court in the end um, but basically they found against him and the reason they found against him was they said that as a slave as a black slave he wasn't a citizen of the United States and therefore he wasn't protected by any of the rights that were afforded to American citizens he actually didn't have the right to bring a case to court um, and so his kind of claim you know very much like, like Data's claim in a sense was uh, struck down in his case Absolutely and I think that Star Trek, like as I said earlier, is you know from America originally, um, and I think a lot of the parallels will be to things like that. I think that was probably, <clears throat> I think that that was probably in the writers' minds at the time, and it's. But of course, it's happened all around the world, and you have you know the Jews in Nazi Germany and. 
you know, whether it's legal or moral, it's essentially the same thing. You're you're looking at the rights, and if if a judge is deciding it, then you'll get a specific answer. But you also get throughout Star Trek moral answers, and a lot of them are based on actual legal um, Starfleet regulations or Federation regulations. And um, I think. Um, Janeway in Voyager um, throughout the series does a really good job of bringing the importance in sort of practical terms as well as moral terms, uh, the importance of these moral principles. Um, so, for example, um, there are times when people have said in Voyager something like, I don't know if we, Janeway herself said, I don't know if we can afford Starfleet principles at one time, and Chakotay brings it up um, at one time, and of course you have uh, the ship, what's the name of the ship? Um, Equinox. Yeah, Equinox, yeah, um, where they've abandoned them. And, but you get in several episodes like The Void uh, and throughout the series in general, Janeway coming to the conclusion that actually Starfleet principles will be, you know, will, you almost can't, you can't afford not to follow Starfleet principles. And one of those basic principles is the respe- respecting the rights of other species. And you see that in The Void, respecting the rights of the indigenous uh, aliens within the void, and um, of course in the equinox you have them not respecting the rights of the alien species they come across uh, in order to use them to try to get home. And in the void she actually pulls up a copy of, I guess it's the Federation Charter, isn't it? I mean she's going through these legal documents. Same way in The Measure of a Man actually, Picard is going through legal documents, and in the end he goes to see the judge and he says, I can't make head nor tail, you know, this is gobbledygook to me, this kind of legal jargon, Uh, I need your help to sort it out. there's definitely that kind of uh, reliance on the kind of the, the legal arrangement. And Janeway, actually, interestingly, in Author, Author, is very aware of this kind of historical precedent. You know, she makes that speech and she invokes this time in the history of, you know, the Federation, the history of America, saying that at a certain time only landowners of a certain race and gender were allowed to have rights. So exactly that idea that came up in this in this case of this slave, Dred Scott, that, you, you know, some people were allowed, some people were people and some people were things, essentially. And that's really what happens in The Measure of a Man, is this recognition that you know, this idea of property, they said that, you know, once you determine that data is property, it's effectively a form of slavery. But that very issue... Which you know, Guinan points out. Which Guinan points out, that very issue in the Dred Scott case was one of the things that the, the lead judge said in his summing up was basically that these, you know, this we the people, these are not people as far as that document is concerned. These are things, you know, this is, I think he calls them merchandise. Uh, an, art, an ordinary article of merchandise and traffic is the, the term that's used and so that's precisely the thing is that you know it, it, it's no good I mean human rights are all very well and good but if someone isn't being recognised as a human then it's it's kind of meaningless right so how does that relate to how does that relate to species other species in the Star Trek franchise so there's that very famous line in Star Trek The Undiscovered Country the film mm-hmm. where um, I think it's Chancellor Gowan's daughter whose name I cannot remember Azekpour Azekpour that's a, that, that's a, that's a catchy name um, <laughs> She says um, something like, you know, human rights, you know, even in the name, right. you know, they are, it, it, it's like racist. The very name it's is racist. racist. The very yeah. name is racist, yeah. 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 Um, and then at some point, one of the Klingons says, present company excluded, when he's referring mm. to Spock, because obviously Spock isn't completely human. Yeah. So, <clears throat> one of the things that I thought was very interesting in doing the research for this podcast was how 
so different and, 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 and so varied um, the different species and the different worlds ideas of what rights were mm. you know humanoid rights shall we say or alien rights um, in on some in some country some sorry in some um, like like in the today's world um, some worlds and some 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 cultures allow the death penalty allow torture and other countries and other other organized um, uh, unions don't so there's a situation like with the uh, European Convention of Human Rights outlaws torture and everybody who signs up to that and is part of the European Union has to actually agree to not have torture um, or the death penalty is another example there um, but in the Federation you know there are cultures like Bajor uh, uh, has the death penalty for instance in, in, in the episode Duet um, when they think they have a Cardassian war criminal they're talking about executing him so Bajor, he was found guilty Bajor has um, the death penalty at that point Bajor is part of the federation um, but you have to you wonder if did they have to give up their right to execute people in order to become part of the federation and what it seems like is the federation isn't massively brilliant at imposing those universal rights across the universe I mean like in the episode The Cloudminders in the original series um, they visit a world where there's massive human rights abuses going on um, and I'm not sure Kirk and Spock seem all that massively concerned um, so what did you think of that? Like in in the conjunction with today's world, where we have these um, uh, treaties we sign up to that we all promise to abide by, but then obviously some countries don't, don't do that. In like sort of in contrast with the Star Trek world, where the Federation's got these very specific human rights rules, um, but other cultures and worlds don't. And what happens if you have you know say a rogue? Federation planet who are doing something I mean I mean, Bajor you're right is not part of the Federation so that's kind of different but what happens if a, an individual Federation planet turns well there's the Kodos the Executioner that was a Federation world wasn't it and obviously he went a bit you know crazy or whatever and uh, you know started doing things that were that would completely violate those rights you know one of the first one of the on most of these different um, rights conventions is the right to life and he just starts executing people to try and um, solve his, his food shortage I mean I think that you, you have like people going rogue sort of not not often but it comes up quite a few times uh, especially when it's something like of the moment like that when someone just suddenly makes a decision because of a crisis or whatever and and does that and that might pass and that might be down to that one person but I think you probably also have um, that as you say I don't think the Federation imposes these laws that much. I don't think they go around and, and make sure that everyone is following the rules. I think they, it's probably when they accept someone into the Federation as a Federation member, they look at, they do a big study of that. We know it's, it's you know, takes a long time for them to look at Bajor to decide whether Bajor is ready for Federation membership. And you get the sense that, you know, every time someone's going to join, and you see it in TNG quite a few times as well, they do a survey, they do a, an extensive bit of research into that planet for a while before deciding to accept them and then going forward after that I think it's kind of um, you know based on uh, what's the term you know where you um, you allow them to you, you sort of trust them to follow through you know um, you just just accept them to, to follow the rules and you don't really check up on it because you've decided that they were ready to become a federation member so they're ready to be trustworthy 
um, and obviously then there will be some that end up turning sour after that. I mean, if you have a democratic system, someone else might come to power in that on that planet and change the way that things work. And then I suppose at that point they have to be looked at again. And but they know they're going to lose federation membership if they screw up. So and maybe guess, that keeps people in line a bit. And then there's also the other situation where the federation has to deal with races and um, worlds that don't actually that aren't part of the federation, like Cardassia. Or I was thinking in the Voyager episode, Repentance, where they come across that trip that that, that ship of um, prisoners who are being held prison by prisoner and by these prison guards um, and they have to just kind of put up with the human rights abuses mm. even though the, the, it goes completely against Starfleet's um, philosophy it goes completely against what the Federation rules um, and Cardassi is a great example it, on Deep Space Nine the, the Federation are there almost like sort of semi-objective observers and the, the Cardassians are still committing massive human rights abuses throughout the entire series um, are you thinking about like Garrick torturing Odo, um, or, or um, you know some of the stuff that Golden Cat does when when he has um, occupation of the, of, of, the, of the station, imprisoning um, um, Lita and imprisoning um, Rom. <laughs> I was like Nog, no, that's not Nog. Rom, um, and. You know, and exec- you know, the intention is to execute, execute Rom them. as well. Yeah. I mean, the Cardassians are, I suppose, they were, the, the, To be the, fair, the, they, they did kind of... They, what they did was sort of would be seen as traitorous or whatever. What I think is more um, disturbing, actually, is how they sort of stood and, and watched from the sidelines when Cardassia was occupying Bajor. Mm. And, of course, the idea is, you know, the prime directive and you don't want to intervene and, when, you know, you could make things worse. And, obviously, we can see when America goes and tries to supposedly spread democracy, you know, it can be a, a complete disaster. But to kind of just not even—I don't think they really helped Bajor that much. I don't—I don't know. I mean, it, obviously, maybe that's the right thing to do, just to stay out of the way. But it is disturbing when you think about it that the Federation was right there, so powerful, and just watching as Bajor, as you know what Cardassia actually did to the Bajorans. And then after, of course, they're going to help Bajor and not they're not accepting Cardassia into the Federation, but is that enough? Mm. And I mean, the Cardassians, I think, in, in the whole of Star Trek are the kind of quintessential human rights abusers, really. I mean, you know, almost, probably if you went through all the all the rights that you've got on one of those documents, you'd find they, they'd break pretty much all of them. I mean, famously, you know, uh, when Captain Picard was captured by the Cardassians and tortured, you know, torture obviously is something that, although occasionally you know we do see Archer crossing that line we do sort of see Janeway slightly crossing that line but broadly speaking that is completely outlawed in the Federation Cardassians view that as a completely legitimate normal aspect of uh, interrogation the right to a fair trial you know the Cardassian justice system is kind of Kafkaesque it's, it's you know this absurd uh, setup where where basically guilt is already presumed you know one of the rights in these documents is the presumption of innocence and the right to a trial before you're punished um, so you know in all these different respects the Cardassians basically trample all over what we would consider human rights I don't think they have fair elections even you know they don't have everything in that society is kind of you know it, it is more like say North Korea or it is more like you know countries that we have in the real world where there are rights abuses whether it's you know stoning women in the Middle East or it's you know a country like a totalitarian regime like North Korea or somewhere like that that's the kind of model we have there and I suppose when Clara was asking you know what does it mean to say that they're human rights and 
obviously in Star Trek VI there's that line about it being racist and you, you know is this are human rights just for humans and that comes up in Enterprise as well because I think in the episode Cogenitor uh, Trip makes a point about the Cogenitor's human rights um, and someone it might be T'Pol corrects him and says they're not human you can't impose that on them at the same time I think Star Trek does have this view you know also going back to the undiscovered country Kirk has that line everybody's human and that's the kind of Star Trek uh, view is that really these human rights should be extended to all beings essentially whether they're technically human or not they're kind of they're human as yeah, far as we're concerned they're, they're universal yeah Kirk always tries to call everyone human thinking mm. it's a compliment even yeah. though he's, he's insulting him <laughs> but I mean but that's kind of Star Trek is quite unique in, amongst science fiction franchises because of the fact that so many of the aliens in Star Trek are humanoid mm. uh, Star Trek is very much about the human question the human experience the human drive and, and, and the quest um, for, to make the world better um, if you, uh, a lot of science fiction shows or science fiction films have aliens that are more alien otherworldly like <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking of the film Arrival yeah. I mean how would you even be able to sort of deal with the rights of, an, uh, of a creature that has a completely different concept of time mm. um, you know time isn't linear for the aliens in Arrival it's not like it is for us so, so we get the wormhole aliens and I mean and uh, there is some questions about like the rights of who gets to go through the wormhole mm. and how people have used the wormhole are you going to put are you going to let like warships go through the wormhole is that really what the prophets would want you know it's hard to know what the prophets would want prophets inhabit humanoid bodies um, one of the things that really struck me as interesting about the Cardassians which you uh, when you're talking about them is that they commit human rights abuses in much the same way that many regimes over the years over, over history have committed human rights abuses which is that um, they see it as defending or um, supporting or furthering on um, or building their own culture or their own community so it's very clear the Cardassians were once a peace, peaceful spiritual people um, and then of course the army took over uh, probably like in some sort of coup you can imagine from like a provisional government or civilian government or whatever um, and that's because there was massive starvation so the Cardassian who tortures Picard talks about having this ch- horrific childhood where he had to fight for food and he was you know constantly his life was constantly under threat um, so I'm not this isn't excusing their human rights abuses at all but in the Cardassians' minds they don't see them as human rights abuses they don't see it as abuse they see it as like we have the right to have a healthy well-fed population we don't have the natural resources Bajor does mm. they're not managing their natural resources well enough we can do it better if we just take some of it you know and then like as you said that just kind of spirals out of control into absolute horrendous like a genocide basically and you're right, and you're right when 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 Cisco first arrived on Deep Space Nine Kira is furious she doesn't want the Federation there they don't want mar- another set of masters mm. and you can imagine she'd be furious because yeah you're right where were the Federation during the time where she and all everyone she knew was growing up in refugee camps mm. right well the, 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 I mean I think the Cardassians they have a combination of firstly this kind of obsessive nationalism so they've got this you know it's all about Cardassia it's all about you know doing things for the 
betterment of Cardassia, whatever that means, whatever that means for anyone else. And also this kind of colonial attitude of they can go to another planet and exploit their resources. And Descartes says in the episode Waltz, he says, we were the superior race. Basically, we had the right to take these things from you because we are better than you. And that is very much the kind of attitude that underpins the establishment of the slave trade, you know, this idea that, you know, uh, yeah, well, maybe these people are human, but they're not human the way we're human. You know, they're not the same as us. They're, They're kind of lesser beings and therefore it's legitimate to exploit them. And, you know, really that's what a lot of these rights come down to is the kind of, they're basically different freedoms, aren't they? But they're, they're freedoms from different forms of exploitation. Yeah, um, and I wanted to say, that's why I don't think, I think you both explain um, the Cardassians really well, and that's why I don't think they're very much like North Korea. I think they're more like um, uh, fascist or imperialist, um, maybe uh, somewhere between kind of... Um, you know, a, a feudal kind of version of a society and a more like Mussolini slash sometimes Hitler style um, fascist society of the, of the modern modern age. And it's interesting because they do, they had um, ancient contact, contact with the ancient Bajorans and I think the Bajorans were more technologically advanced but also more spiritual and just a very different culture and then the Cardassians um, did go through some tough times and became, they had a, a, definitely a history of a very artistic and you know, uh, high culture society at one point and then they did kind of degenerate more into into what they became. But it's interesting um, is you get some, th- this defense of Cardassia as a justification for what they do. You also get from the, um, the guy who was pretending to be uh, the butcher of Galata, um, but but wasn't. Um, but you you can tell that he, the lines that he's speaking are, you know, the, the kind of the lines that he got from those in power at the camp, from maybe the butcher of Galata himself. And he he says, you know, Kira says, well, yeah, I killed Cardassians, but because I was fighting for for Bajor. And obviously, she meant, you know, in terms of they were being, they were oppressing the Bajorans, and she was fighting for their, you know, they were fighting for their lives. And he, but he responds, oh yeah, we were fighting for Cardassia, and he gives this kind of speech about about what that meant. Um, but I also wanted to jump in on uh, Garrick is another interesting. Uh, source of information about the Cardassians and you get some of their literature um, in his discussions with Julian uh, you get an understanding of, of their belief in working for the state you know lifetime after lifetime of working for the state and so on and um, there's also uh, a discussion or, or a, a comment actually from Garrick where he I think it's yeah it's from Garrick and he says that um, when they're fighting in, in, a, in like a battle he says you must admit uh, he says you know a, a, a interrogation chamber would be better you must admit it's much more civilized and I think that that is totally wrong and I think that it depends on how you define civilized but I think civilized has to be about um, this the kind of society that respects rights and that has things like democracy and you know like a, a conversation between all of the people that you know out of which emerges a society that everyone can accept and everyone can can be respected in and stuff and I think um, the interrogation chamber especially as we see it from Cardassians 
is the opposite of everything civilized. And that's, I think, kind of what happens to a culture like Cardassia. It used to have this high art and probably was very civilized, but because they've stopped respecting people's rights, and, you know, and so you can get even, you know, yelling at a computer or yelling at a dog or treating animals badly starts to create this culture. And ultimately, if you're willing to violate the rights of other sentient beings um, of any type, you know, you, you're increasing, you know, have slavery, you know, and so on in the extreme, um, you're losing your civilization. Although, interestingly, the Cardassians do, I mean, one element which they do share in common with, uh, say, the Nazis in the Second World War, um, you know, and maybe not with North Korea, as you were pointing out, is that idea of they're kind of, they're cultural snobs, for a start. They believe in high culture. They also, you know, even in the episode where Picard is being tortured, the torturer has his daughter. He talks about, you know, the importance of family. They're kind to children. They, you know, they, I don't know if, if the Cardassians are kind to animals necessarily, but, you know, the same thing you'd see sometimes with um, Nazis in the Second World War, you know, kindness to animals, kindness to children and so on, and yet unspeakable cruelty to other groups of people. And it's that idea, that's one of the things I think is so chilling about the Cardassians is that they, you know, they, they do want to talk about art and literature. They do um, demonstrate gestures of kindness. They do occasionally, I mean, even someone like Gul Dukat occasionally does something that we, we sort of like him for. Do you know what I mean? He, ha he has a few good qualities in there. And I think that makes them more interesting in some ways. Sure, but, but they have lost a lot of their culture. I mean, the, the literature that Garrett talks about, it very much feels like bordering on just propaganda. I mean, I'm sure it is good literature and I'm sure all of that, but it is, you know, generation after generation of duty to the state and so on. And that's their high form of literature now. And I think it has been heavily influenced by the, the way that the society has become much more um, centralized and dictatorial. I mean, you, and you have the Secret Service that knows what you've eaten for breakfast and so on. And I think that gets fed into the literature. I mean, you had in the Soviet Union a time when you couldn't, you know, if you wrote anything that didn't conform to these ideals that they had, um, you know, you wouldn't, you, you, it would be not just censored, but you might also be sent to the gulag for writing it. And you have the sense that in Cardassia, you probably have some of that influence the way that the literature goes and what I mean by losing culture I mean you also and, and you do have we know the doctor um, in Voyager uh, the doctor who they, they recreated the hologram of the doctor and he was not only um, giving diseases to Bajorans but he was also sacrificing many animals um, in terrible ways and he didn't care about the alien that they were actually trying to save he only cared about saving Bellana's life um, you have the sense that the, this cruelty is, you know, it, it affects a lot of parts of the culture. Yeah, sure, they still love their children. I mean, you, it's, I'd, you'd be very hard-pressed to find any, no matter how bad, system or regime where people don't still love their children. Yeah. Even if their children are raised by the state, you know, which is a little bit different. But, you know, everyone, you always love the children. Um, that doesn't, that maybe not, doesn't change. But everything else, you get the sense, has been affected by this shift in Cardassia. And I do think that they have... That is not, you know, they've lost their sense of civilization and culture. I think one of the problems is that um, it doesn't really matter how cultured a society is. I mean, we live in a very cultured society, but we have the Human Rights Act, um, and we have that to protect our human rights. It doesn't matter if we're educated or we read books or we have enough to eat or we abide by 
what like I don't know traffic laws. We need to have the human rights because um, there's always going to be someone who's willing to violate them, who's willing to take somebody and make them a stereotype or. Um, and, and then, because there are, they are a stereotype, they be able to treat them badly or um, or, uh, or use them for some nefarious purpose that they didn't sign up for. And I'm thinking of the example of like the Cardassian torturing Picard. He talks about his daughter. He's obviously a very cultured man. He's an educated man. But when he starts the real serious torture of Picard, he stops referring to them as captain. He stops referring to them as Picard. He calls him human. And throughout DS9. Um, the, the Cardassians refer to Bajorans as Bajorans, or they say, um, you know, they, they refer derogatively to a single Bajoran as um, Bajoran, you know, they shout it. And um, you can see as um, throughout Star Trek, actually, when an alien or a, or a species wants to make another species or another alien seem less, um, to um, dismiss them, to potentially treat them badly, um, they call them by their species name, you know, like Taxian or Vulcan or, um, and actually, and actually, in Star Trek, on Vulcan, um, you know, like calling Spock a half-breed or calling um, like Amanda, his mother, like a human whore, you know, they're not, it's, it's inconceivable that any of Spock's um, school um, school, I say school colleagues, school buddies, school classmates would have known, wouldn't have known who Amanda was. You know, they know who she is, they know her name, but they're not going to call her Amanda, the the wife of the ambassador, because that's making her a person, giving her respect. They're going to call her a human whore, um, and that's something that you see throughout history. Like the Nazis didn't really think, didn't want Jews to be people. It's harder to kill people. It's harder to kill individuals. It's harder to kill people who have families or identities or interests or hobbies. You want to dehumanize them. You want to make them objects. You want to make them Jews. You want to make them um, vermin. Or and in some of the cases we see this in our own culture when people talk about immigration, they refer to refugees as swarms of refugees, making them seem like insects. And if they seem like insects, it's easier to infringe their human rights than yeah. treat them badly. Well, I mean, it's interesting, I suppose, for the Cardassians, maybe it's easier to abuse the rights of other other beings if you see them as, as less than yourself. Although they do presumably abuse the rights of their own citizens as well, if they feel that they're dissidents or whatever. But for the Federation having established this idea of treating all species equally, of treating all species with respect. Then there's this kind of interesting question, which we see, you know, particularly in Deep Space Nine, of we talked earlier about what happens when you're at war. You know, what are the circumstances where these rights uh, suddenly become kind of provisional? I mean, in Deep Space Nine, there's that episode um, with the quote, the title is the quotation from Cicero, inter arma enim silent leges, in times of war, the laws fall silent. And that's very much a theme that we see you know, both in Star Trek and in our own, in the real world, you know, after 9-11, we had these concepts, we had the idea of enhanced interrogation, you know, which is a euphemism for torture. We had the idea of extraordinary rendition. You know, we have these kind of uh, bizarre sort of convoluted phrases which try to sort of get around the fact that we are basically pushing some of these rights that people have fought for and that have been encoded in law out the window. We're finding ways to kind of to get around them in a sense um, you know and we see that in Star Trek as well we see these kind of 
we see instances where people cross the line, you know, where Archer tortures someone, where, where people break their own rules because they feel they have to, because they have, you know, no choice or whatever. But we also see situations where, you know, I suppose in insurrection, for example, the Federation is committing what is, is clearly a human rights violation against the Baku um, and doing it knowingly, really, because they've decided that, you know, it's justified in that instance because they're going to profit from it. They're, they're not really any different from the Cardassians in that respect. Right, but um, hopefully you get the sense that this is only a few people that go renegade. And you say, you know, it doesn't matter how cultured you are because, you know, you, you need the, the human you know, or humanoid rights um, in order to, to stop certain people. There will all be, always be certain people who will break the rule, and that's right. But in hopefully in the Federation, it's only a few. It's those few renegade people, and you need those rights to protect those few. And you need those rights to help the culture continue to be what it is. But I do think that it is largely the culture that produces the people who are more or less likely to violate human rights. And so you have to, you, you need laws and you need things to begin to get the culture to move in that direction. And you need co- you know public conversation and you need trials that come out the right way, not the wrong way, um, obviously, and, and grant rights to everyone. Um, but going forward, then you build a culture that does most of the work of making sure that people treat each other well. And you only need to rely on those laws in, um, in certain instances. And when it comes to wartime, um, those do often that is when when these things go out of the window or or get even worse Um, but uh, one thing I wanted to to mention is um, something that we do today on earth and that I think I I remember happening in um, a few instances in Star Trek Um, maybe you can help me remember when they happen basically there's there's the prime directive and so you have to follow other people's laws but what about instances and maybe Cisco um, might have done something like this or I can't remember who um, where the, the Federation officer sort of took advantage of the fact Archer certainly um, threatens it of taking advantage of the fact that another society um, has less protection for rights and so therefore either threatens or actually sends someone to that place so that they would torture or they would execute or whatever so you you get um, America sometimes like wanting to do this extradite someone to the Klingons we see that yeah. in um, uh, in the pale moonlight I think yeah. don't we that that's the threat that's leveled over the guy who's going to forge the uh, holographic clip is well you're wanted by the Klingons you know if we hand you over to them they're exactly they're going to do unspeakable things to you that the Federation will not doesn't Cisco task Garrick with basically getting the Romulans into the wall yeah because yes. Cisco and can't do it himself. unofficially right. <laughs> I mean, and yeah. Yeah, but it is sanctioned isn't it because he, it is actually sanctioned by Starfleet what he does even if it's kind of slightly off yeah the book. which is not a good thing and, and Cisco's not necessarily happy with that and you have section 31 which there's a great line I think Odo says it about you know isn't it a convenient arrangement where you can hold up your high moral you can be on the high moral ground and section 31 will do all the dirty work and you can pretend you don't know about it essentially yeah. um, so this is I think this is one of the first steps before you actually go ahead and change your human rights law your humanoid rights laws and throw out everyone's rights before that you might extradite to someone who's to, to some place that's worse um, or have them do it or have Garrick do it or have section 31 do it mm. or in the case of the UK um, you have planes like during like the height of like uh, war on terror I say the height it's never really ended but you know like during the time where the, uh, the Guantanamo Bay was at its height 
you were having um, planes with detainees flying through British airspace and sometimes landing at British airports to be refueled. And Britain itself wasn't I suppose to be sanctioning this kind of torture. But you could argue, well, Britain isn't sanctioning the torture, but they're allowing Americans to use their airports, use their fuel and to use their airspace, knowing full well that anyone who lands here and takes off again is gonna go and be tortured somewhere else. It's a convenient arrangement. It's a convenient arrangement, yeah. So I wonder, are there any other, I mean, just looking at this various human rights legislation, are there any other articles or any other kind of um, rights that maybe we haven't touched on yet that could be relevant to Star Trek? So there was one um, that I thought maybe we could talk about just briefly, which is the um, right to privacy. And the reason why I wanted to bring this up, I wanted to pose this question, was because I... And watching the series, um, Deep Space Nine, but also actually watching um, Next Generation as well, um, I noticed that um, most Starfleet ships or uh, Federation stations are, are fitted with extensive computer libraries, computer data banks, and it almost seems like anytime anybody wants any information on anybody, they can look it up and they can find it. And the information gets shared very freely between different organizations, between Starfleet, between the Bajoran, um, I guess the Bajoran government, you know, Odo uh, continually seems to have a, a, data, a data bank of all the information that he ever needs to know. And I wondered, how does this work in terms of the right to privacy? So, is everyone's information being stored centrally somewhere? And um, does anyone have access to it? I, I wonder how much of that is what we would consider public information today, and how much of it is more private. So, you know, um, you can find out where I've worked and probably even where I've lived. Which maybe we shouldn't um, have that so available but that's pretty easy easily available today and for the most part things like that we don't mind so much but maybe how much money I have in my bank account or you know things like that we might consider more private today and certainly my medical records there's a big you know question of that today so yeah I wonder in the Federation I mean do they have the same uh, understanding of what should be public and private and do people have the option of making things public or keeping them private and in the case of Odo I mean he, he certainly has violated the, the, the rules of the Federation and he's not working for the Federation really he's kind of he's supposedly a Bajoran security officer in a way although the the way that it works on the space station is a bit confusing because um, it, it's sort of both um, but he's not he's not Starfleet for sure um, and so and he has broken the rules he's you know, got Cisco angry at him and, and so forth, and he spies on Quark, and that's probably not, you know, that, that probably is against the rules, but he says it's best for the station, so he does it anyway. So whether he accesses things that people would rather have private because he finds some backdoor in, because he has a lot of Cardassian friends that help him out with backdoors and stuff like that. So I don't know. Um, but, I mean, Starfleet officers are going to, a lot, all of their basic information is going to be available to Starfleet. Um, for the most part, um, at least in a sort of hierarchical sense, where maybe there are things classified at the top, or, or there are things classified in general, but everything else is pretty much available to Starfleet officers. But regular Federation citizens, I mean, could you find out everything that you wanted to about Cisco Sr.? You know, or would he be able to, you know, he could very, very stubbornly say, no, it's my rights. He's very proud of his rights as a Federation citizen, as we see in um, home, Homeland. Homefront. 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 Um, so, you know, he's very proud of that. And so I'm sure if he wanted to keep things 
secret he probably could and he would probably demand it don't you think yeah definitely no I think that's true I mean it's hard to be sure because obviously in all the series you, you know we're seeing Starfleet we're seeing kind of military setup where obviously you you know your rights to things like privacy are probably limited to some extent compared to an ordinary citizen I mean I guess what we see, you, you know, over and over again in the shows is, is the combat is this kind of symbolic uh, emblem of your lack of privacy in a sense. And if someone wants to do something they don't want people to know about, they take their combat off and leave it on the floor and then suddenly they're <laughs> off the grid, and you know, magically. They, 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 which is slightly implausible they in a way. They take off to have sex. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's your kind of privacy screen yeah. in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Not to be bothered. Yeah. <laughs> So I don't know, I mean, I don't know whether that affects it, that we're seeing people in essentially a military environment and someone like, uh, you know, Mr. Cisco on Earth is obviously, is living in a different environment. But then that episode that you talk about, Homefront, of course, you know, is the episode where we see this real kind of clampdown. We see martial law being imposed. We see all these, and this whole debate about, you know, does someone have the right to refuse uh, a, a blood screening, for example, if they, do, if they don't, if they see that as a, an infringement of their rights. You it's know. obviously very exciting exceptional circumstance, a very exceptional yeah. moment when they think they're getting invaded and they have some evidence to think that they're getting invaded by the Dominion and, you know, changelings are everywhere on Earth. And even then, you know, within, I forget how long it exactly takes, but within a, you know, a certain amount of time, weeks or, or whatever, they realize that, you know, nothing's happened yet. They realize that there was someone that went rogue again in Starfleet and get rid of the guy who went rogue and get rid of all of the martial law. And at the end, you know, Odo says, aren't you still scared? And, you know, they, Cisco says, Cisco Senior, whatever, says, um, you know, yeah, of course we're still concerned, but we're not going to give up our rights for this. And I think that's, you know, there are moments, but and there are rogue people, but hopefully overall the Federation is not going to violate people's privacy and use martial law and all of that stuff in general. Um, I wanted to bring up something, um, which is, we've been talking about rights a lot, but we haven't really made a distinction that we are talking about individual rights. There is also such a thing as rights for a society, and you can have, you know, a society can, can become quite authoritarian and quite like Cardassia if you only care about the state and the rights of the, the overall society. But there are times when you do want to grant rights to a society, such as when you use the prime directive to stay away from a society, to say they have the right to evolve on their own. And like, there's a, a Voyager episode called Natural Law, and you have, and and in that one, they sort of they want to grant the rights of a society to stay completely protected and away from from everyone, not just with the Prime Directive, but they actually have an alien has created a force field around them. And so this is kind of representative of like an indigenous um, kind of old tribal society or something somewhere where, and you might have invaders, you know, like the Americans going to invade America and the, the latter-day Americans, you know, to um, and, and potentially by accident or on purpose wiping out the indigenous population and so forth. Um, but you also have in Star Trek, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And you have a lot of um, discussion of 
of, um, of things where you do you know you, you do respect um, a, a group and not just an individual so I guess my question is you know in, in terms of this discussion of rights how much is this all about individual rights and how much do we have to sort of look at rights in a slightly broader context and where there might be something beyond just individual rights that we're talking about thoughts so I think the problem the problem with that is that um, and it might sound kind of controversial for our, our listeners, but um, I personally think that the rights of the individual are different depending on which society you live in. So American rights seem much more individualistic to me than British rights. As a society, I feel that Britain is um, less concerned with individual freedom in the same way that America is concerned with individual freedom. So for instance, you don't always get to choose who's going to operate on you in the UK but everybody has the right to an operation. I mean, within, I mean, I know that some operations are not covered by the NHS, but the majority of operations, especially when it comes to preserving your life and your health, are covered by the NHS. So you don't have the right to choose yeah. who's going to operate on you, but everybody gets, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. everybody gets the right to an operation. Um, whereas in the US, obviously this is all in flux at the moment in the, with the current administration, but, um, you know, it, you get to choose your own op- uh, surgeon, but it means that maybe people living down the road from you don't actually have the right to have the operation that they need because they can't afford it, yeah. or um, it's, it's, it's something that's not covered by their insurance plan or whatever. Well, um, it's not considered a right, so a right. it would be an individual right if it was considered a right, but it's not considered a right. Yeah. So the, the thing or is... I, I can explain the reasons if you want, not that I agree with them. <laughs> but, but, but just the, it, just the, the words, uh, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, when you're making legislation, you've got to think about a, a law that's going to be able to benefit a huge number of people, as many people as possible, as opposed to a, a small group of people. Um, and unfortunately, often the people who are making laws are often a small group of people. And in lots of societies, they are uh, sometimes wealthier, they are members of, of, of uh, upper classes, um, uh, or often have had more opportunities from birth, often, um, and are more educated. So technically, it's quite possible they are going to make rights that are going to benefit the, the few rather than the many. I mean, we'd hope, morally, they would see it as their duty to make rights that would rights that benefit everybody. Um, so. I think if you you've got a question when Star Trek was made and how it was made by you know it, it, Star Trek primarily has been made by Americans so individual um, self like self-determination individual rights is very important in Star Trek mm. uh, but there's also this kind of I would say goes far as saying perhaps a slightly socialist message of Star Trek as well which is that collectively we're stronger than we are on our own and sometimes you have to do what's best for the group um, over the what's best for the individual and sometimes those two things clash the, the, what's best for the individual clashes with what's best for the group um, and sometimes the individual has to sacrifice what they want so the group can get every everybody can have, have what they need but you um, don't want and to not, I, that clashes sometimes with American well, but, but I mean also I think um well, it's interesting that you say that because then you have, say, I was just thinking the best of both worlds. You have Picard going up against the Borg and he says, my culture is based on freedom and self-determination. I mean, that sounds like a very American uh, 
especially coming out of an English actor's mouth. You know, it, it sounds that sounds very much like the kind you of don't American in individualistic. Of here. I'm not saying I don't believe in it, but I'm just saying I think it's an interesting point. Whereas you're saying they also believe in a sort of collect a, a form of collectivism. Obviously, not the Borg collectivism, but a, kind, like more, a more benign version. version of that, maybe. But I think it's true. Even I mean, just thinking about other rights in these kind of um, conventions that we have. You know, the right to freedom of speech is something we have a right to freedom of speech. They have one in America, but the right to freedom of speech in America goes further to the extent that in England, say, we have libel laws which operate, you know, uh, you know, maybe not strictly enough, but they operate certainly more strictly than whatever the equivalent is. I don't even know what the equivalent is in the States, but in the States you can get away with saying things that here you would get in a lot of trouble for saying um, yeah. about people. The freedom of speech is enshrined. Exactly. Very, yeah, very, uh, sort of almost without compromise, whereas yeah. I think over here there's a recognition that Yes, we believe in the principle of freedom of speech, but there are instances, you know, hate speech, for example, there are kind of instances where uh, freedom of speech can have limits placed on it without fundamentally taking it away from people. I think Americans, um, the, the culture is that um, when something is, is very important, when a right is very important, it's you can't compromise it. There's this idea that there's a slippery slope or that if you compromise it a little, you're compromising it completely. Is this idea that you know it, there's an ideal and it's got to be respected? I think, um, but there, and and you know and maybe this also makes it more difficult for people to compromise, you know, in public discussion and in terms of finding you know laws and thing, and and regulations that even though yeah there might be some some bad that could come out of it, it doesn't mean you throw out the whole thing. You know, like a minimum wage law. Well, it might cause unemployment even amongst the population you're trying to help. But is there any way to get around that? And here you have, you know, so these minimum wages apply to these people and these apply to those people, you know, in terms of age especially. And that's one way to avoid causing unemployment amongst the people you're trying to help. You have a slightly lower wage for people who are more likely to, you know, to only be able to get a job at that wage. Um, so you don't get as much compromise in America. Um, but the idea that, you know, sometimes an individual has to sacrifice for the group, I think one of the, the problems with that is that if you take that, you know, too too much as a given, then you might end up having a situation where you literally sacrifice the individual, you let the individual die or something to, to help the group. And that's when you start to have that corruption of culture that we were talking about before, I think, where, you know, where you end up turning into Cardassia or, or something like that if you sacrifice the individual and you you get that in a lot of you know when you have a revolution when you have you know communism or something and, and that believes in communism is you know it was supposed to be a, a system that was good for the people, for the workers, and so forth. But you had this willingness to sacrifice an individual for the collective and for the ideal, and so that's why I think also Americans are so um, hung up on individual rights. And in Star Trek, you have the idea that the group matters, but you also have definitely the idea that the individual matters, and that you are not allowed to sacrifice the individual for the good of the group unless that individual chooses to do so. And you have a lot of people. Risking their own life to save the group, but you're not supposed to go and go ahead and sacrifice an individual in order to save the group. No, it's a personal choice, right? Yeah, they make a personal choice to do that. And choice, I suppose, is the key thing. You know, that's sort of what we've come back to again and again. That's what data was trying to fight for. That's the kind of, you know, in a sense, that's the sort of fundamental right that really, you know, a lot of these conversations are about. It's the right to choose, and that's the, you know, that's that's the most important thing. Well, it's been great talking about uh, human rights here today, both at the London School of Economics and in a random cafe around the corner. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but before we go, um, why don't the two of you tell our listeners where they can find you, uh, whether on the Trek FM network or, or elsewhere on the internet? Um, Clara, why don't you go first? Um, so you can find me on Twitter um, at Clara Jean MC. I'll just say that again because it's quite loud here. That's at Clara Jean MC. So um, if you had any ideas about this podcast and you want to chat, please do uh, send me a message on Twitter. And Gwenevere. Okay, um, I'm on the Babel Conference a lot. And I also have uh, a podcast on Trek FM called The Briar Patch. So you can find me on the Babel Conference. Uh, my name is Guinevere. And I'm also I have uh, Guinevere42 is my Twitter, but I'm on Facebook a lot more than I'm on Twitter. Um, and please uh, listen to The Briar Patch sometime if you uh, find my random thoughts interesting. It's a great new show. I'm really enjoying it. It's uh, you know, good to have that added to the Trek FM stable. And uh, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at Barrett's Books or you can uh, find me in the Babel Conference as well. Well, it's been fun talking about human rights this week, but that's not the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM. So here's a listen to some of the other things you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, the 602 Club. Oh, huge. Uh, I mean, uh, Tintin, definitely in Europe and in many, many other countries um, in Africa and Asia, um, is really honestly as big as James Bond rolled together with Indiana Jones and Superman. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. First of all, it very much hinges on the existence of subspace, um, which is also a kind of murky sci-fi term that is used in Star Trek to explain how warp drive works and um, and how you can communicate. The orb. And, and so it, it makes the relationship between... Uh, Nog and Jake really important because it's I think it does really soften Cisco's heart towards the Ferengi and I think it does the same thing for Rom. Rom I think begins to see the ways in which these Federation types actually are different than most Ferengi to kind of think of them Warp 5 I, I like to talk about these things they're not easy to talk about you know, this is not an easy discussion to have because of so much stuff that's going on in our society right now, you know, and what's been going on for years, you know, I, again, that hashtag, the me too, like it really opened my eyes, you know, and which is what it was supposed to do, right? This is exactly what it was supposed to do. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. 
Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel Conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter, Duncan at Barrett's Books, and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media. And you can also find me hosting my own podcast, the Xcast and X-Files podcast, if you type that into Twitter and Facebook. So thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. Blend it already.